Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You know, it's so important to ask the right questions. I'm not talking about just in a podcast. You need to show that you're interested in and curious about the people you're with. But knowing how to ask questions, knowing how to be a good interviewer, I've studied all of them. Whether you like these people or not, Howard Stern, Joe Rogan, David Letterman, and Larry King, I want to study the master interviewers so that I could be a good interviewer. And 1,300 podcasts in, I feel I'm still learning the craft. So that's why it was such a pleasure to have one of the best interviewers on the planet, Cal Fussman, who interviewed people like Mikhail Gorbachev and thousand other people for Esquire magazine. He was also best friends with Larry King. They had breakfast together every single morning for years. And, you know, Larry King, rest in peace, he explains to me exactly what Larry King how he did it, why he did it, how he came to be doing it. And it was like a masterclass in interviewing. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Thanks. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So Cal, Cal Fussman, you were arguably one of Larry King's best friends. And I, I'm not exaggerating too much when I say this, particularly in his latter years. Yeah, I had breakfast with him almost every day for more than a decade. Wow, every single day, not, not Saturday and Sunday. No, every single day when we were both in town. Now, there were times, especially toward the end, when I started to speak around the world. And so I would leave. But when I came back, there would Larry be at the breakfast table. And sometimes he went out. But when we were both in LA, we had breakfast every day. And sometimes in the beginning, at, when he was still on CNN, he used to take me into his CNN show. Uh, at night, and he would sit me off right next to where he was sitting. Camera couldn't pick me up, but it really enabled me to study uh, how he did what he did. And often we'd end up going to the Palm. So sometimes it'd be breakfast and dinner, and even sometimes it would be lunches. <laughs> so I 
I got pretty close to him. And like, okay, so I have so many questions. Uh, first, I mean, we'll start from the beginning. How did you, you know, I, I have questions about his interviewing style, his his personal life, uh, your friendship, uh, his latter years, so so many different questions, his, his career, his success, his effect on you. Um, but first off, how'd you meet him? I met him. It's an interesting question because when you say, how did you meet him? Does that mean the first time that you actually shook someone's hand? Or does it mean when I was in a car driving from Columbia, Missouri, where I went to college, like back to New York, and he had a mutual radio show where he was on all night? All night, from like 11 at night to 5 in the morning. I, I don't think people realize how hard radio personalities, particularly big ones, work. I mean, they are they are interviewing people and trying to be entertaining to a large audience for so many hours a day, every single day. That's That's incredibly difficult to be good at that, to be good enough that people want to keep tuning in every single day. Because... They're not listening. It's not like Larry King says, tomorrow we have Tiger Woods on, and then everybody suddenly turns in. They turn in because they like Larry King, because they like the, the host. Whether or not the listener or other people liked him, he had a huge audience, and I want to dive into that because he had a very unusual interviewing style, which not everybody is a fan of. But, okay, so let, let's do both. You first met him somewhere, and then you first like had some kind of chemistry with him at some other point. Okay, so... I would listen to his all-night show uh, because he was doing that. That's how he got to CNN. How, why would you listen to his all-night radio show? It was amazing. I mean, this guy was on from 11 at night to 5 in the morning. Great interviews, but also he could be telling stories. And he made you feel like you were with him. I and mean, that's the great thing about radio. You're in a car and somebody's talking to you. You got a friend. And he became a friend to the nation. Now, what, when you were listening from 11 p.m. to 5 in the morning, were you on the road? What were yeah, you doing? Like I'd be driving on a highway. And so that's my, my first like, mental images of Larry King where you, like, you're just moving through Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> why were, were you like coming back from a brothel? Like, why were you at a three in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, like I'm taking like a cross country trip. Imagine like, and it's try and see me as like a truck driver. Okay. Yeah. Imagine I'm a truck driver. It's very difficult to imagine that. <laughs> Whereas you're like tattoos and the beard and the pack of cigarettes <laughs> in the pocket. I don't know. I have a weird image of truck drivers. Well, I, I like truck drivers and I, I often traveled their roads when I was going to school in mid-Missouri, uh, and I would drive back to New York along Highway 70, or I'd go out to watch the team play football games. Uh, you'd go on Highway 80, you'd be going to Nebraska and Colorado, and you're driving in the middle of the night. And here's the thing, very few people realize this. Larry King was the reason that we have all these talk shows on AM radio now. Because back, back in the 60s, AM radio was the hot 
place to listen to music. This would be for FM. You're like, if you're living in New York, it was like Cousin Brucie and uh, on WABC. And they had contests where you could win 25,000 bucks if you they could figure out the name of like, the first few bars of the song, if you can name it. It was, it was if you were like 13 or 14, you were tuned in. But then what happened is FM radio started to come along in the 70s. It became the cool thing. The, the connection was better. So everybody who loved music wanted to go to FM. So AM was left saying, oh, man, well, like, what are we going to do here? And this guy, his, I think his name was Ed Little at the Mutual Radio Network, realized what was going on before anybody. Larry was a DJ and an interviewer in Miami. He had some renown. He was Mr. Miami, but nobody knew him in Iowa or Idaho. And this guy, Ed Little, thought, you know what? I'm going to ask Larry King to do an all-night show, and I'm going to put it all over America between 11, 5 in the morning, and everyone said, this guy, you're nuts. Ed Little, nobody in Louisiana is going to listen to Larry King because the people in Louisiana want their homegrown talent. They don't want to be living, listening to somebody from Boise, Idaho, and the people in Idaho don't want to be listening to somebody in New York. Well, Larry took a gamble on it. Uh, he started in Miami very briefly, then moved to Washington. And immediately, this show took off all over. Because, think about it. If you are up at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, if you're the night watchman, if you're the nurse working that shift, you're kind of alone. And Larry was a bullseye for those people because he made them laugh. He made them curious. He made them interested. That's why I could drive along the highway for 18 straight hours. Well, he was only with me for six during the night. But it was always moving to somewhere new. His curiosity fueled your curiosity. Like, what would be an example? Like, what would he tell a story about that would keep you on the edge of your seat, literally. Oh, man. Have you ever heard him tell the Gil Mappo story? To be honest, I have never once listened to an entire Larry King show. I, oh. I've listened to parts and bits and pieces of interviews of people I'm interested in, but I wasn't a huge fan in the sense that I really followed him. I just would be interested in particular guests he had. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. And look... You got a great producer there in Jay Yao. Yes. When he edits this, we're going to stop the podcast, okay? And I'm going to get you a story that Larry tells about Gil Mapo. Now, he told me the story, but the story I'm going to get you, he told to Jimmy Kimmel. And I use this story on the podcast that I did after Larry passed away. I would say the story goes about seven or eight minutes, and Jimmy Kimmel announces it as, this is the best story I've ever heard. And you'll hear Larry go through it on his show, and at the end of it, you will know why this guy was so great and why if you were up at three in the morning and you were alone 
and you get to hear this story, you are blessed. Blessed. I, you, I can't wait to listen to this. I mean, is there, can you give me some highlights? Like, what was the story about? I don't want to ruin it. Okay. I don't want to ruin it. Will you tell the story, because I think it might be my favorite story ever, the story of when you and your classmates pretended. But it takes a little time. I know, but I, you know what? I'm willing to spend that time. Pretended that You're another, not going to edit it out. I know. Maybe. I'm not going to edit right. it out. Right, okay. You tell the story. Here's the story. This okay. is a great story. Okay. See, okay. I oversold it already. When you go this to, is kind no, of an okay story. It's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> See, if you interrupt, you kill the story. I, okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep quiet. I know it's your show. In though. fact, I may even go stand with the security. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> we were in ninth grade and uh, in Bensonhurst Junior High School in Brooklyn. That's junior high school. In ninth grade is when you graduated, and then you go on to high school for 10th, 11th, and 12th. Every district is different in the country. In New York City, it's ninth grade. We were 9B4. 9B1, A students. 9B2, B students. 9B3, C students. 9B4, we're not sure. 9B5, Neanderthals. <laughs> One guy in 9B5 loved me. I removed a thorn from his paw. <laughs> anyway, one day, Gil Mermelstein did not come to class. We called him Gil Mappo because he had head like, his hair was like a mop. He didn't come to class. Gil Mappo. That was we called him. So, Herbie Cohen, the world's greatest negotiator, Brazia body, a brain surgeon now in Buffalo, and me, we go to visit to find out, we go to his house to find out why Mappo didn't come to school. The, all the shades are drawn, and sitting in front of the house is a boy looking forlorn. He says he's Mappo's cousin. Mappo had developed tuberculosis. The family has taken him to Tucson to cure it. He won't be back in school for a year, so the kid is waiting. He's his only relative. The kid lives in New Jersey. He's waiting overnight to go to school to tell him Mappo won't be back. You can't leave a kid back for illness, so he's going to go on to high school. So Herbie says, well, go on, you go home. We'll tell him. Gosh, thanks. He leaves. We're walking down the street, and Herbie says, I got a fantastic idea to make money. We'll tell him Mappo died. <laughs> Mappo died. It's foolproof because the kid is the only relative. He's in Jersey. Mappo's the only child. The parents have taken him to Tucson for a year. He'll be, we can't miss. And what we'll do is we'll raise money. We'll get flowers and candy, and we'll go down to Nathan's eat hot dogs. So... <laughs> It, it's it, it okay all right well, all right we go into the class we bow our heads go up to the teacher went to mappa's house he's dead the teacher calls the homeroom homeroom calls home phone disconnected they record dead and we collect 195 dollars <laughs> okay this is just the beginning two weeks later the teacher principal asked to see us oh my god we're walking down the hall i'm crying you know i got no father my poor mother Brazzy, I'll never be a doctor. I'll never be a doctor. Always one. Here's Herbie, the negotiator. No problem. I'll handle it. I'll handle it. I'll, we, we had a mix up. We'll give back the money. We'll think of something. We go into the principal's office. Instead of being ticked, he is pleased. My three young friends, sit down. He doesn't know us from Adam. Whoa, sit down. He says, boys, here's what happened. The New York Times wants to do a series of articles on junior high schools because they don't get any credit. High schools get all the play because they play intramural sports and junior high schools don't. So we had a faculty meeting. What could we do? Each school was to do a project. And we heard about you and your raised money for the late Gil Mermelstein. <laughs> we looked up our records. Gil Mermelstein is the only student in the history of this school to die. Most kids make it over that 14-year-old hump. He made it over. Okay, so what we're going to have, you got to hear this, we're going to have a Gil Mermelstein Memorial Assembly <laughs> a week before graduation. 
and we're going to honor the number one student in the school. We're going to give him or her a replica of a statue. And then we're going to build a statue in the lobby, the Gilmer-Mersteen Memorial, with his picture. And then every year we'll add the name of the winner. And at the assembly, we want a full uh, school assembly. We'd like the three of you to sit on the stage in honor of your late friend. We should have told him. <laughs> uh, to this day, we should have told him, but we were caught up in the ego of the moment. We were, okay. Now we're walking down the hall, and we're leaving the office, and uh, we, we, what are we going to do? We're in trouble. And Herbie goes, well, let's look at it this way. We're going to go on to high school. It's going to take a while, and someday, I know they're going to have a trophy, but look at it this way. Someday, it'll kick in. Someday, Mappa will die. <laughs> And when it does, that trophy will mean something. <laughs> anyway, now it's the day. This is God's honest truth. It's the day of the Gilmapo Memorial Assembly. <laughs> okay, the three of us are on stage. The principal's day speaking. The winner of the first award, and the whole school is there. And that day, that damn day, Mapo came back to school. Uh, <laughs> As, as Herbie likes to say, in tubercular history, it's medicine's <laughs> finest moment, they cure Mappo. There's only one week left to school. So Mappo comes, and he's got two ways he can enter the school. Through the side, little Chinese curtains, very quiet. Or two big brass doors, they lead right on to 84th Street. Mappo chooses the doors. He opens the door, and the first thing he sees is a banner. Gil Mermelstein Memorial Assembly. <laughs> Mappo is not the brightest guy in the world. But he knows what memorial means. So he freezes, right? The kids in the back row spot him and immediately know the whole story. Razzie, Herbie, and Larry glommed us for 190 bucks. This is a farce. They knew it immediately because they're New York City kids. If you're a New York City kid, you're, you're, you're ahead even if you... If you're a D student in New York, you're mayor of Des Moines. You can, you can phone it in. He's kidding. Now there's panic. The principal's looking up. What's going on? Herbie stands up to this day. I don't know why he does this. Stands up on stage and goes, Go home, Mako. You're dead. <laughs> Mako runs. There's pandemonium. The kid who wins the first award. Do I get my award? Do I get my award? The principal looks at us. His veins are coming out of his neck. My office. Now he runs off. Now we're walking down again, and Herbie's saying, don't worry, and I'm crying. And now we get into his office, and this I've never seen a guy angrier in my whole life. Than this he says, this is my worst day in my history of New York City public schools. You are suspended for life. Go down to your locker, take your stuff. You will not graduate. I'm going to recommend Rikers Island. I'm going rec to recommend you chop rocks until you're 18 years old. Get out of my sight. And Herbie says, you know, you're making a big mistake. Uh, what happens is, uh, Mr. Principal, is we're going to be suspended because we did a dumb thing. But the school board, you know, you have to have a hearing. That's a rule in New York. It has to be a hearing. And at the hearing, we're going to be suspended because we did a dumb thing. But someone on the board is going to say, Mr. Principal, three dumb kids come into class. They tell your kid is dead. You make one phone call. The phone is disconnected. You create an entire assembly of the dry memorial. Well, I tell you what, we'll be suspended. You'll never be principal again, New York. He says, and here's the capper. He says, so why? Why don't we just forget the whole thing? And the principal's whipped, and we forget the whole thing. And here's the final story. And this is true. We graduate not by name, but by uh, size. So we don't graduate alphabetically, but by size of the student. So <laughs> Mop goes right in front of Herbie, and the principal's handing out the diplomas. 
and nine before. And he goes, Gil Marlstein. Herbie pushes him aside and said, I'll take it. He's deceased. <laughs> Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lesson number one, just listening to Larry King tell stories might improve my own ability to tell stories. A million percent. In fact, in fact, when I came to Larry King's breakfast table, I was kind of quiet. And and part of the reason is because when I came to his breakfast table in, it was about 2008, it was filled with all, a lot of the guys that he grew up with in New York. So they were all 75, uh, maybe even close to 80. And I was like, you know, I'm in my 50s. I was like the, the freshman in high school sitting with the seniors, you know. Uh, you just sit and listen. And then after the breakfast, uh, Larry and I would go out. And he would tell me the stories that I needed to hear for his autobiography, My Remarkable Journey, which I went on to write. So, wait a second. I have no idea about this. You didn't notice? James! Uh, Wait, hold on a second. I've I've gotten other, you you have a collection of your Esquire interviews. That's, That's what I've got. You know uh, what? I, I'm going to. It's it's interesting. I, I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, I I wanted to extend Larry's legacy as far and wide as I could. Uh, I did basically an obituary filled with these stories. 
uh, some of them that I recorded, uh, the Gil Mapo story, uh, I mentioned Jimmy Kimmel had on his show. And if you if you listen to that podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman, Farewell to Larry King, you will understand how great this guy is. Oh, my God, James. James, well, I, just I hold wanna, it. I want to say some hold quick it. highlights. Hold, whoa, whoa, okay. whoa, whoa, whoa. Right, hold, hold it. You go, you go. If Larry King had not become a broadcast interviewer, he would have become a comic. That's what he told me. Wow. Well, you know, you know, and he worked with, and his he says that his first inspiration was Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason recorded a radio show in Miami uh, in the early days when Larry King was recording in Miami, and they would hang out all night from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. That's correct. And and when you hear the podcast, he tells the story of how Jackie Gleason got him an interview, three hour interview. When he was, when Larry was like not known, I mean, Larry's like <laughs> just getting started in Miami. And at that point, Frank Sinatra was the biggest star in the world, didn't do any interviews. New York Times called him. He didn't even bother to return the call. And his press agent like, told Larry, I don't know how you got this, but he pays me money not to do these. And when you hear that story, you are going to fall in love with him in a way that makes me sad because I never had you at our breakfast table. I know. You know, one time, one time Steve Cohen went when we were in California. Oh, you didn't ask me to go. Oh, oh. I was hoping to be, get, the, get the invite. Oh, James, you know, I, I, I cannot imagine that I didn't invite you because if— I love you, and and if I'm close to you, it's it's almost impossible. You might have been a busy dude, and you know you'd come out to California, and you had a lot of meetings. I'm, I did that. That could be. It could be that I'm you did ask me. Pretty sure I asked you to come. Yeah, because I think I was. I think I was pitching a TV show then, and it was like I had meetings like all day, and I I really regretted not going to. It would have been much better to go to the Larry King breakfast. But I just want to say some some highlights that I didn't really realize. First off, the man has done 60,000 interviews. And so I thought I've done a lot of interviews. I've probably done about, I don't know, two or 3,000, but Larry King <laughs> dwarfs me. And the other thing is, um, I didn't know his first broadcast, his first radio show was in 1957. That's correct. I mean, correct. this guy is like radio history. And I mean, those are just two highlights. He's got many others, but, but those right there show that he's a force to be reckoned with. And there's a lot to learn from him, but I don't know if I've ever learned anything from him. And so that's why I wanted to learn from you on this. Even if you just take an hour to listen to that farewell to the King podcast, uh, you, you can learn storytelling. You will get an understanding of like where his curiosity came from, how it formed him. And also what you're going to get is a new look at the way he asked questions. Yes. He has a very unique way, a very unique approach that if other, I've seen other interviewers try his approach and fail miserably he, he, he mostly pulls it off. I think what got me down on him was the fact that there's sometimes he doesn't pull it off 
but you, you could describe his interview style. Well, here's how he got started with interviewing. So, and let me just back it up and, and I'll tell a quick story about his first day on radio. I hope I do it justice. He actually tells it on that podcast so you could hear it in his words. Uh, but he grows up in New York at nine years old in Brooklyn. He's walking home from the library. He's got nine books in his arm. And as he's walking up the steps, he hears his mother scream. Now he noticed police cars out in the street, but he didn't think much of it. And the next thing he knows, a policeman is running down the steps, picks him up, the books go scattering, and puts him in the police car. Larry has no idea what's going on. Was he scared? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nine years old, your books are scattered. Policeman has put you in his arms and put you in the police car. And at that moment, the policeman tells Larry that his father has just died of a heart attack. Oh, man. 44 years old, his dad was. And the reason the policeman probably did that was Larry's dad for many years had a bar and grill that was frequented by a lot of the cops. Uh, his dad had a great sense of humor and all the cops appreciated it. And they would go to this bar and grill. And I, Larry even remembered at a very young age, getting some kind of police uniform and they put a badge on him and he's walking around. And so his family had a good feeling about policemen. And this cop obviously must've known Larry's dad and just wanted to do something good. So he starts driving around the neighborhood and he doesn't know where to go. And so he stops at a movie theater. And this movie theater, this is the middle of World War II, James, is playing the movie Bataan. And it is about a group of American soldiers trying to stave off the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. And so there are only a few American soldiers and they're getting picked off one by one. And the main character is this guy named Robert Taylor playing Sergeant Dane. And so there's down to three Americans and the Japanese are coming in slowly. I think the, 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 la the third to last of the three uh, is hit by a sniper, taken out. The second is stabbed by a Japanese soldier who'd been playing dead. And it's only Robert Taylor, the last guy to be defending the Philippines. And the movie ends with Sergeant Dane right behind a machine gun, like firing straight into the camera at the advancing enemy uh, in one last act of courage and defiance. And that was a day Larry King associated, the movie that Larry King associated with his father's death. And there's a toughness to him that many people don't realize, but 
His mom didn't have a job, so he grew up on relief. New York City bought his first pair of glasses. And he, as I say in the podcast, he had three great reasons to wake up every day. One, the radio. He loved the radio. Two, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, so he'd be imitating the voices he heard on the radio, and then he'd roll up a program at Ebbets Field and announce the games. And then if he was at the game and he'd go see his friends, he would literally do the entire game over for them, <laughs> announce it right in front of them. And he would, he would do this for us at breakfast where he would kind of give us the highlights of what happened in a game. It was better than watching the game. And the third reason was his friends, which when you hear the Gil Mappo story will be perfectly <laughs> explainable to you because his friends and he had, it's almost a romantic childhood where they got into all these crazy problems and somehow got out of them at the last moment. And that was the formation of Larry King as a personality who wanted to be on the air. Now, what happens is when he gets to the age of about, I think it's 18, he gets drafted, it's time of the Korean War, he goes in and it, you, you've, you've seen his glasses, he can't see. And they basically told him, look, if we sent you into the army and you lost your glasses, you could be shooting the wrong side. So you're 4F and they let him go. All of his friends either went into the army or to college. He was left basically alone. Uh, he scrambled to get odd jobs. He delivered for UPS. He uh, worked for a time for some kind of supermarket collecting debts. Uh, and he collected debts in a very funny way. It was almost like he was on the air. He didn't say, I'm sorry to inform you of this, but if you do not pay that debt, we will congeliate your account. <laughs> oh my God, saying, that's brilliant. Don't, don't congeliate me, please. <laughs> he just would invent a word and make it funny. But the reality is he was a long way from the radio and his best friend who figures prominently in the Gil Mappo story that you just heard from Jimmy Kimmel, Herbie had a dad who owned a hat factory. And one day while everybody was off at the army or college, Herbie's dad takes Larry on a walk. They're just going around the streets. He wants to help Larry because he could see Larry's lost. He's working, delivering packages with a driver named Crazy Krause, who's madly driving down the streets, looking for the side view mirrors of cars that are parked so they can knock off. I mean, that's where his life was at at that point. And he didn't, Larry didn't get past high school. And so Herbie's dad says to him, look, like, what do you want to do with your life? And Larry says, I, I want to go into broadcasting. And Herbie's father goes, what are you, a pipe 
Dreamer, are you crazy? You on the radio? Look, that statement is a very important statement, what this guy said. Whenever someone says that, and I tell this to people all the time, whenever someone says that to you, you can't do that. A, you have to do it after someone says that, <laughs> or you have to at least try. B, they're only saying that because they can't do it. And C, they're also saying it because they don't want you to change. They like the you who they know as a semi-loser, the, the, the guy who's in a box that they've created. They don't want you to rise above that box. So, but go ahead. That's, and, and, I always stop at that phrase. And you know what? Uh, where I'm going is gonna validate your last point. Cause Herbie's dad looks at him and says, look, you're not gonna be Arthur Godfrey, okay? You're, you're, I'll tell you what, I own a hat factory. Why don't you come and work for me as a binder? You'll learn the business. One day after many years, you can become foreman. A foreman gets three weeks vacation. And that way, someday, someday you can be somebody. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's true. It's, uh, it's the whole, you should go into plastics thing from the graduate. There was this kind of like old school thinking of what was safe and what was, what was quote unquote crazy, but, but okay, go, go, okay. go on. So one of the things, and Larry and I always used to talk about this. We, we used to wonder about the icons that he spoke with and who I interviewed as well. And we used to wonder about similarities and patterns. And one of the themes is quite often, like icons have a dream to do something and they never get put off by Herbie's dad. They, they always find a way to move on the path that's gonna take them to their dream. And so one day while Larry was delivering packages, like he would get sent up to like the, the office of CBS and he would walk into the elevator to deliver the package, but he would act like he was talent, you know? 17th floor, please. <laughs> in, a, in that radio voice. And at a certain point, he's like out on the street and he bumps into this guy who is an announcer for CBS. And he says, you know, I'm, look, I'm, I'm 24. I don't know if he was 24 or 25, around that age. 24 years old. Uh, I've always wanted to be on radio. I really believe this is what I'm meant to do. How do I break in? And the guy says, well, look, it's very hard to get started in New York. Uh, and then, and there's a lot of unions in New York. So why don't you think about going out of Miami? Because there's no unions down there. There's a lot of stations and just knock on some doors and see if a station will let you in. So Larry, a few days later, like gets on a, I think it was a train. And I didn't know if it was a train or a bus, but you know, he had like less than 20 bucks in his pocket. He had an uncle who lived in Miami beach and he arrives 
to find two water fountains. One said white, one said colored. And he immediately walked over to the one that said colored. And don't forget, Brooklyn Dodger fan, Jackie, Jackie Robinson. was at Jackie Robinson's first game. He lived the whole experience from 47 on. This is 57. And he goes to his uncle, and the next day he's walking around Miami Beach, knocking on doors, asking people if there's any openings. So he goes to this one station, WAHR. The guy at the station says, you know, you've got a pretty good voice. I'll tell you what. If you want to come around every day, sweep up, cut the copy that comes out of the wire machine. Just just help out in little ways. The first time something comes up, I'll put you in. So Larry does that and every day just goes in and he is juiced because he is where he wants to be. Now there's this morning uh, DJ named Tom Bear who claimed to be making $65 a week alimony payments and his salary was 60 bucks. <laughs> he said he was living off coconuts falling from the trees. And on one Friday, he went to the general manager and just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And he left. And so the general manager turned to Larry and said, okay, Monday morning, you're the DJ. We'll see you Monday. So Larry goes home, and look, here's the thing. If you, if you listen to the podcast, you're going to hear Larry tell his story, and it's just so beautiful coming off his voice. But you know what? I'm, I'm just going to tell you because I'm looking at your face, and I know you want to hear the rest of the story. So what happens is he oh, goes- I'm, I'm, I'm soaking it all in. All right. I, I'm going to tell you, and then you just promise me you're going to listen to Larry do it. Oh, my God. I am, I am totally listening because you know what? I, this is a, this is a big issue for me. I feel I can write in very good stories about my life, but it's hard for me to tell uh, stories about my life. It's a different skill set. I mean, I could do it, but I'm not like great at it. I feel like writing, I've, I've spent a lot of time. I want to, I want to learn how Larry King tells a story now that you've like uh, uh, sparked this fire in me. And, and this is what he did for me because like, I was able to tell stories pretty well, but when you listen to him every day for 10 years, it was like having an internship with a master only, like I'm in my 50s. And at the end of, I think it was about two, I would say halfway to three quarters of the way through those breakfasts, I was asked to speak in an event on a cruise ship and I never spoken before. And I sat down and very much like you, I could write out what I wanted to communicate, but I had never gotten up in front of a crowd and communicated. So I wrote down what I wanted to communicate and I started to practice it. And as soon as I did, Larry King came out. Wow. Everything that I had heard, all of the shifts and the use of tone and the ability to make people lean in to find out what was going to happen next, 
I just picked that up by osmosis. It was just coming to me the way I was breathing air. And, and so you will, I promise you, if you listen to this podcast, you listen to the Gil Mapo story, you listen to the story about his first day on the air, you listen to the story about, and the podcast opens with him telling this story uh, about being on the air only a few days and working the night shift because once everyone saw that Larry was a glutton, that he would work, anyone who had wanted time off, they would just say to Larry, you want, you want my shift? And he would do it. And the first all night session that somebody asked him to do at like three in the morning, he picks up the phone and all he hears is a woman's voice. And it says, I want you. <laughs> That's going to inspire anyone to pursue an all-night career in uh, in radio. Well, I hope it, I hope, I'm going to leave it at that. I hope it will uh, get people who are curious about Larry King to listen to that Farewell to the King podcast on Big Questions because it's my favorite Larry King story, uh, and it's in his words. And you'll see that, like, I have a favorite Larry. Everybody's got a different favorite Larry King story. There's numerous out there. Uh, but I'm going to take you back to that first day because he spent all weekend practicing. And he's got like, his records ready that he's going to play on the air. He's the DJ in the morning. Yeah. And so he goes in first thing in the morning and he stops in at the general manager's office. And the general manager says, Congratulations, it's your first day, it's a big day. And what are you gonna call yourself? And Larry says, well, what do you mean? My name is Larry Zeiger. And the general manager says, yeah, but that's kind of ethnic and it's hard to spell. Like, you need to change your name. <laughs> he says, but I, I don't know what to call myself. And so the guy looks down Marshall Simmons, and he's reading the Miami Herald on the desk. And there's a big ad for King's Wholesale Liquors. And he looks up and says, how about King? You're Larry King. And Larry said, okay. So time arrives. He goes into the little control studio, and he's got his music to set up the show all set. Swinging down the lane, and he drops the needle. It starts to play. He lifts the needle, starts to talk. Nothing comes out of his mouth. <laughs> He's just like, just speechless. He picks up the needle again, and he puts it back on the record. It's spinning around. It's da 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 da. Picks it up, starts to speak. Nothing comes out. Puts the record down again. <laughs> it plays again, picks it up. Nothing comes out. And he's thinking, I'm, that's it. My, my career's done. I, I don't know how. So he, you think he, do you think he overprepared? He wanted so this. Instead of like, instead of like riffing and just telling something interesting, he tried to remember 
what something he had prepared, but in a high stakes moment like that, his first show, maybe he just couldn't remember, his brain shut down. He wanted it so badly that he got so nervous that he couldn't be himself. Fortunately, the general manager kicked down the door to the control room, control room and screamed at him, this is a communication business, damn it, communicate. And Larry looked into the microphone and said, hello, my name is Larry King. That's the first time I've ever announced myself that way. I was never Larry King until 11 minutes before when the general manager told me that was my radio name. And he started to say how much he'd always wanted to go into radio. And he admitted, uh, I'm sorry about that opening. I'm just really nervous. This is all I ever wanted to do in my life. And I just got so nervous. Please bear with me. So, so he, he basically almost instinctively did the first rule of entertainment, writing, comedy, broadcasting, which is really be yourself as much as you can. Like it's usually bad advice to tell someone just be yourself because we're all different people in different situations, in different contexts, but just saying what makes you scared is a good way to, to relate to people and, and, and not trying to sound like a radio announcer he had heard when he was a kid or a writer he had read when he was, you know, inspired to write or whatever it is you're, you're doing. He just always telling a vulnerable story is, is, is really the key to entertainment. That you just hit the bullseye. Vulnerability is the key to storytelling. Without a vulnerable character, you have no story. Yeah. If he said like, I, well, I'm going to be the best radio announcer ever. Now you, you're lucky you're listening to me. No one would listen. That, that, that's exactly it. So now he has everybody on his side and he gets through the show. General manager is very happy and everybody can see that he is here to stay and he just keeps hanging around the radio station, fills in whenever he can. And that comes to this night a few weeks later where he's working at like two or three in the morning and he gets that call from the woman. I'm not going to tell that story because you need to hear it in Larry's own voice. Well, I agree. And I want to hear, I want to hear how, how you met Larry and, and you know, what happened, what happened then. And then I have, I have some specific questions about targeted about his style and about, you know, his personal life, which usually I don't ask about people's personal life, but his was very much in the news and exciting, but yeah. How did, how did you get close with him? How did you, what started you having breakfast with him every day? And by the way, I don't, I could understand it. I mean, he he was whatever, you know, seven in his seventies when you started having breakfast with him every day. And it's good to hang out with younger people. <laughs> Keeps you young. Uh, well, it, I don't think it's, it started with that thought. It was basically a, I would even say it was like a business relationship or uh, but you had similar interests in a way, in a weird way, you had a, a parallel career. You weren't a radio voice, but you were an interviewer and you had interviewed same people, Mikhail Gorbachev on, right. on down. He he's known for his famous interviews. You're known for your famous interviews. Correct. And so what happened is after Larry had 
done the DJing in Miami. Uh, and after he had gone to Mutual Radio and was on all night all over America, then Larry interviewed Ted Turner, who was just starting CNN. And Ted Turner had a woman on uh, basically doing a, like a news show at nine o'clock Eastern time every night. And this woman had a husband who was her agent. It was always like pushing Ted for more money. And after Ted had met Larry, he thought, you know, maybe I can get Larry to do the nine o'clock hour and I can tell this agent to take, give him the heave. Oh, oh no. What, whatever happened to this woman? Where is she now? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> so what, like, what happens is Ted calls up Larry and says, I got this nine o'clock slot open. And I know you're on the mutual radio network all night until five in the morning, but you can come on CNN at nine o'clock and we have, we'll have a place in Washington. So you're on from nine to 10 and then you can get over to your radio studio and then you'll be on, you'll be there by 11 and can have your show all night. And Larry at first said no. Two reasons. One, uh, nobody really knew CNN at the time. It was only a few years old. Uh, in fact, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but when Larry did his first CNN show, there was no cable wiring in Washington, D.C. You couldn't even watch the show there. Uh, but Ted was building it, and he said, look, please take this 9 p.m. slot, and if you don't like it, after a year, okay, well, just let me know and that will be it. Now, the reason Larry said no is he loved his life in Washington. He would go and have lunch every day at Duke Siebert's restaurant. They would sit him right in the middle. All the power players would come in because he'd introduce a lot, a lot of politicians on his radio show all night. And so Larry would have that lunch and then he'd go to the Baltimore Oriole games and then he'd do his all-night show. So for him, he was living the perfect life. Why would I want to like, take the show? Then I can't go to the baseball games. And, but Ted's a very persuasive guy, persuaded him. And Larry did the show in Washington, D.C., 1985. Mario Cuomo, governor of New York, was his first guest. And when they got up from that show, they had been sitting down with only that old time radio microphone in between them, though it was filmed, uh, Cuomo looked at him and said, you know what? This feels really right. And Larry wow. felt it too. And so at that point, he started his ascent where at nine o'clock every night, everybody in America who's watching CNN is tuned into him. And then he says, and stay with me. I'll be on mutual radio all night. All night, we got some good guests tonight. And then he'd do the whole mutual radio show. And in the and morning- was cool with them advertising. Uh, uh, there you go. In the morning, yeah. at, at 4.45 in the morning. And tonight on ESPN, tune in. We got Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan, he would do the same thing. And he made this a circular- vehicle 
for people to get on. And you could literally be with Larry King from nine at night to five in the morning. I want you to think about that. That was his scope. If you wanted to be with Larry, you could be with him for 33% of the day. So at that point, he, he rose, ascended with CNN, and toward uh, the end of the 90s, at this point, he is one of the most famous people on the planet, one of the few f most famous. Uh, I started to do the Esquire What I've Learned columns where I'm interviewing icons about the wisdom that they've accumulated in life. So it was a natural that I'd want to reach out to Larry to get to his wisdom because, number one, I've heard all the stories from driving across the country and listening to the radio show. And his show at 9 o'clock was something I watched almost every night on CNN. I just was fascinated by the way he interviewed. And so we put out a request, and Larry was very gracious. And I spent two sessions with him doing that Esquire interview. In person. Uh, yeah, and out in LA. And it was great because he's just telling these wonderful stories. And the what I've learned column in Esquire was one written page of wisdom in the subject's own words, and then a full page picture. I had like, I could have filled the whole magazine with what Larry King gave me in two hours. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything 
than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options, hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What were some things he told you that really helped you, that really improved you? Because we all do podcasts, we interview a lot of people, and I get a lot of tidbits of wisdom, and I try to incorporate them into my life, but it's it's difficult sometimes. And uh, I'm just curious what you actually took and incorporated into your life. I can distill it to a sentence. Every setback is a step forward. And Larry had lots of setbacks in his life. Uh, there was a time where he was arrested and he lost his job uh, in Miami radio. Uh, what happened is not long after the Kennedy assassination, there were a lot of people who thought that it was a conspiracy. They didn't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only person behind the murder. And as you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot uh, after he was imprisoned. So we never knew anything from that end. And to this day, we don't really know what happened. If you go to the actual X on the road in Dallas where Kennedy was shot, like where the motorcade was when he was shot, there's a guy who will tell you what happened and then, and he'll give you a CD and everything, a CD. <laughs> and it's up to you to decide if he's well, correct or not, but he's very persuasive. I, I, and I'm sorry to be laughing. I'm just laughing at the absurdity of it. But back then, uh, a lot of people were really concerned and wanted to know what happened. And there was a district attorney in New Orleans named Jim Garrison. Sure. So the Oliver Stone movie. Yeah. That, this is exactly this time frame who it just knows that something deep is here and he wants to investigate it and he won't let this go. He is like a pit bull with a piece of meat that he's not going to let go, but he doesn't really have the funds 
to do the kind of investigation that he wants to do. So he meets up with Larry and Larry says, well, you know, like I know some people with money, maybe they might be interested in getting behind you. So he introduces Jim Garrison to a wealthy guy named Lou Wolfson. And Lou is fascinated with all this. And Lou says, okay, I will, I'll get behind this. I think Lou is going to pay him like $25,000 in installments, but he didn't want there to be any paper trail. So he said, here's how we're going to work it. I'm going to give Larry like $5,000 at a time and it'll be in cash and he's going to pass it on to you. And that's how we'll get the money to you. And it's basically coming to you in an envelope and that's it. And so everyone says, that's fine. And so first time comes and, and Lou gives some money to Larry and Larry meets Garrison and passes on the money. Everything's fine. As this goes on, there's one time where Lou gives Larry the money, but for some reason, Larry and Garrison don't get together. Now, at this point, uh, Larry, he always was living over his head at that time. He was Mr. Miami, uh, but he, he, he just had, he had debts because he was living the way he wanted to live. And also, if somebody needed money, he was very empathetic. And he would loan money, even when he owed money. Mm. And so at about a point where Lou Wilson gives him this envelope with the five grand in it, Larry had some bills to pay. And he says, well, I'm not going to get together with Garrison for a while. So he calls up Wilson and says, like, can I use the money to just pay my bills? And then I'll take care of paying Garrison. And I don't know what happened. Uh, but shortly thereafter, Wolfson was arrested for selling unregulated stocks or some something uh, of that sort. And once he was in jail and interviewed, they looked at his funds and you know money was going out and he got questioned. And the next thing you know, Larry King is charged with grand larceny because of this 5,000 bucks. And his mugshot is in the newspapers and the station that he was working at at the time said, you know, you better just take a little time off uh, until the case is resolved. Well, the case was supposed to be resolved after a few days, but the judge had a heart attack right before the case, which put it like in a banner ad at the Miami Herald, you know, like judge has heart attack in Larry King case. And then the station was saying, okay, look, just stay off the air for a while. And it took a while before the- They fired him. Yes. They, didn't, they, they didn't say for a while. They didn't think he was coming back. Well, what happened is it was for a while and then the case was resolved and it was dropped. They, they just said, no, you're, sure. not, you're not guilty. 
And Larry went back to the station and they said, sorry, you know, we, we can't give you back your job. Was he, I mean, I, I imagine if something like that happened to me, I would have been, and he was, he was younger then than I am now, but this is 1971, but, uh, uh, I would have gotten so depressed. I don't know how I would have dealt with it. Every setback is a step forward. But he realizes that in hindsight. Did he realize that then? Well, let me tell you what happens. So he's down to his last 48 bucks. He's got two kids that he knows about that he's paying child support for. It's the end of May. His May rent is due in a few days, which he obviously doesn't have the money to pay. Uh, he also smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. He needed money for his cigs. And he just, <laughs> he's got 48 bucks. Could have been 46, could have been 42. And he decides to go to Calder Racetrack. And he puts on this Pierre Cardin jean outfit that had no pockets. I don't know why he put it on, but he did. And so he drives out to Calder and he gives the key to the valet. He knows he's got to tip the valet two bucks. It's like to get the keys and drive home. So he's basically got 40 something dollars to work with. And he's studying the horses. The third race is coming. And he looks at this horse named Lady Forley, a filly running against all males. Now, normally for a female horse to beat a male horse, very difficult. But Larry's studying this chart and he's seeing that this horse has won in more or less the same company a few weeks back, a few months back. And he looks at the board and it, Lady Forley is a 70 to one underdog. Hmm. And Larry's thinking, you know, some, something's wrong here. And he turns to the guy next to him and says, like, what, what's, what's up here? Because I'm seeing this horse, it's beat many of the horses in the race, but it's 70 to one. The guy said, look, there's other horses in here. It's not the same race. And I said, yeah, so Lady Forley should be 20 to one, but not 70 to one. And the guy said, look, it's just not going to work out. That horse is not going to win the race. So Larry keeps looking at Lady Forley. He's looking, he's looking, and he said, I'm going to go bet on Lady Forley. He bets Lady Forley to win. And then he comes back, and he's looking at Lady Forley some more, and he said, I'm going to go back. And he bets Lady Forley in an exacta. So he's got Lady Forley to win over every other horse in the race, all right? He's got Lady Forley to win, Lady Forley to in the exacta, so he's got it above and below all those other horses. And he's got- What do you mean below? Um, so if, if Lady Forley finished second, then he's still gonna win some money. Okay. Because he has to win some money because he's, he's bet it with every other horse. And then he's got like $2 left. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna bet a trifecta. So my birthday is November 19th. 
I'm going to bet 11 one, nine. <laughs> So he puts, he's got $2 to his name now, which he's got to give the valet as he's leaving. So goes back out and he's watching as the race gets started and they're off. And the one takes off in the lead. The nine is second. And the 11 is Lady Forley. And Lady Forley is like in good position, but third, as they get halfway, Lady Forley starts to close in, passes the second horse, takes the lead. And now it is 11 1 9, and they race around the track. <laughs> like five lengths apart in that order. And Larry has won every bet that he has made. So he's got like, he goes to pick up the cash and he's got no pockets to put it in. <laughs> he wore his pair cardan jean suit. So he takes off the jacket and he's got this bundle of cash and he wraps it his jacket around the cash. How much cash? Like how much did he win I, on I $40? Think, I think it was like 8,000 bucks or so. So this is like, this is like roughly almost between 60 and $70,000 inflation adjusted. Uh, there you go. This is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, of the, it's like 1972, something like, around that time. Yeah. Inflation's about seven or eight X since then. Okay. So, he goes straight to the valet who looks at him and uh, leaving early, Mr. King. And Larry says, yeah. And he said, bad day, huh? <laughs> and Larry takes out a $50 bill, tips him. Guy nearly faints. He gets his car and he drives over to uh, what later became uh, Joe Robbie Stadium. It's since gone through another incarnation and he basically stops in an empty parking lot and <laughs> takes out all this cash, opens, opens up his jacket, takes out all this cash. And he, he said, okay, my rent is like $360 a month. And he counts out 3,000, uh, he counts out a year's rent, uh, 4,000, whatever it was. Um, my child payments, $100 a month. He counts out 1200 bucks, and he buys cartons of cigarettes <laughs> fill up his uh, kitchen dresser. And shortly around that time, he went out to work at a racetrack in Louisiana because he still didn't have his job. And... Then the station management at his old station in Miami called and asked him, and since it's new people and they realized that this was Mr. Miami, why did we give this guy up? The case was dropped. And so they asked him to come back and Larry said yes. And when he came back, his first words on the air were, as I was saying... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and so whatever dilemma 
you are in, and you're going to hear all these dilemmas if you listen to that podcast. Listen to me. I'm like Larry. I'm selling my CNN show. I'm selling my mutual radio show. No, that's show. great. I'm gonna, I'm, you've convinced I, me to listen I, to your podcast. I have never done this before today. I, I'm telling you, I was, I, I'm shy to sell. Oh, you've brought it out of me. You've brought it out of me, and I'm channeling Larry. And I just know that if you listen to that podcast, you, you're going to be laughing. You may end up crying, but you'll be glad you did. And point being, every time something happened in Larry King's life where he went down, he trampolined well above it shortly thereafter. And so when that happens, you start to get accustomed to it. Now, is like, here's a question. Is he just lucky? Like that obviously was some luck, some skill, right? Because he looked at the sheets, he saw this horse had, was being under undervalued. But is it is it luck or is he trying many things and then one of them hits? Like we don't know the things he was trying at that exact moment that maybe weren't working out something worked out in this remarkable way and that's the story but do you think he's kind of going all out trying different things and and you know luck favors the prepared well the title of his autobiography that it helped him write was my remarkable journey and so and he looks at these events as miracles minor miracles that kept propelling him from one place to the next but he seemed to intuit the way to pivot. And so at the time where AM radio was basically looking very weak, he pivoted to all night and he became very strong. And then that led him to his conversation with Ted Turner, which led him to CNN. Which, which by the way, CNN pre um, Gulf War One was not such a big, station. So it seems like he identifies, he, he gets into a c competitive arena like radio or TV that's in general competitive for, for a job, but he finds like the weakest spots and dominates those spots. He becomes, his strategy has become, become a big fish in a small pond that is surrounded by a much bigger pond. I, I didn't, I never even thought of that. It's a great point because that's, that's what he did. And when when you look at it that way, you see that you can identify that, but once you move in, you gotta have the goods. Yeah. And it was at that point where he got invited back to the station in Miami, shortly after that, that the Mutual Radio Network called him and asked him to come on from 11 at night to five in the morning, which sent him to Washington. And now he was a national figure and once Ted Turner took him to the satellites, he became an international figure. But, and this is really important because there's going to come a time in this podcast where you're going to ask like, why does Larry ask these like softball questions? He never asks a hard question. And what people didn't realize that, Larry King changed elections and won presidential election with his questions. 
You might yeah, remember. Yeah, like Ross Perot That's announced right. That's right. for president. That's right. So I'll, I'll let you yeah. go, go for it. So did he know Did he know that Ross Perot was going to do that? He had heard. The rumors were flying. Some scuttlebutt that, you know, Ross really would like to run. And then it was like from a friend of a friend who claimed to know Perot. And so when Perot came on his show, in the beginning, Larry just put it out there. You know, would, would you like to run for president? Like, nah, I wouldn't do that, Larry. Like, you know, Perot was uh, from Texas, right? He was a he was a Southern gentleman, business magnate. And Larry kind of put it in his pocket. And midway through the show, he, he said, you know, are you sure you wouldn't run for president? And Perot said, absolutely not. I'm, 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 I have no plans to do so. And right before the end, something just instinctively clicked in Larry. And he asked the question in a different way. Ross, under what circumstances would you run for president? Mm. And that was the little key that turned the lock to open the heavy door. As Perot said, well, I'll tell you, Larry, if everybody in the country and every state put together petitions and said, we want Ross Perot on the ballot, I'd have to really think about running for president. And Larry actually didn't think much after Perot said it. But when Perot got back to his hotel, the hotel doorman had $10 in his hand to pass on to Ross to say, it's like your first campaign contribution. Wow. And when Larry got to the mutual radio, everybody is calling. Because again, you got to realize, he's like on the air for a third of the day. There's no escape in this guy. <laughs> and so from 11 to 5 in the morning, is he going to run? What can we do? And... Here's one of the things that, in my mind, makes Larry great in a way that we need him more now than ever. Because what happened is Perot got into the race, something happened, he pulled out, and then he said, no, no, I am going to run. And he, he got like 17, 18, 19% of the vote. And that vote was Republican. So Perot took away George Bush 41 votes and it pushed the election to Bill Clinton. Larry King in that one question was responsible for Bill Clinton being president and everything that's happened in the United States thereafter because of that one question. And now you say, well, why didn't he just drill people with questions? And his point was, look, if you make people comfortable, they're going to feel like you're a friend. You know, that is a very important quality. Like, I think you and I both have, uh, in, in that aspect of his interviewing, I think you and I are both similar. Like, I never, it's, it's pointless to be aggressive because you're, not, you're actually going to get less information than more information. And in an odd way, even though their styles are very different, 
Howard Stern also does the same thing. You feel like his best friend when you're in the room being interviewed by him. Now he goes for different topics and stuff. But Larry King has a, uh, an interesting aspect, though, where he doesn't research his guests before they come on. Now, you and I are both very different from that. Like I re research very, very heavily. I'll read every book. I'll watch other interviews someone's done. I'll, I'll do, I'll do everything. But I feel like I, with Larry King, you can't tell. Was this because he was doing so many interviews he couldn't possibly read all the books and watch all the interviews? Oh, no, 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 no. Here's here's what happened. So I described that first day on the air when Larry get, gets rolling. You're going to listen to the Big Questions podcast. <laughs> and when you start that podcast, Farewell to the King, you're going to hear Larry King tell the story of the woman who calls him up and says, I want you. And you are going to follow the trajectory of his career. So what happens is Larry starts to become kind of a big shot as soon as he gets that first job on a very small level, just like what you were talking about, somebody who does something big on a, on a small level. And the owner of a local deli named Pumpernick's it's open 24-7, thinks, you know, my business is, is really good, but between like 10 and 11 in the morning, between the breakfast rush and lunch, we kind of have this dull spot. What if I got Larry to come in and do interviews from the restaurant at that time? And we could sell it to another station and Larry got the approval and he showed up at Pumpernick's Deli for the first day. There was a platform with Larry King's name on it and a microphone and a chair, but there was no producer. There was no guest. There was nobody to do anything. It was just the microphone and a chair. And Larry had to figure out a way to interview people when he had no guests. So he started by talking to the guests in a restaurant. <laughs> Where are you from? Almost like a comedian sure. looking out again, goes back to Larry, if you hadn't gone into broadcast interviewing, what you, would you have been? I would have been a comic. He's talking to the crowd. He's interviewing the waiters and he's making the waiters like known in the community. And Bobby Darren, the singer, when the shark bites, uh, hears this on the radio, and he comes over to Pumpernick's to go on Larry's show. And they have a great session. And now everybody wants to come to Pumpernick's to be interviewed. Guys are bringing Jimmy Hoffa over <laughs> to oh my gosh. Pumpernick's to be interviewed. Like, there's no producer. You just have to show up to be interviewed by Larry King. And so Larry did these interviews with no preparation. He didn't know who was going to walk in. And he liked just being able to be curious. You know, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa, and seeing where it went. And he never abandoned that style. He allowed his curiosity to just push the interviews forward. Uh, certainly tough questions might get removed from the interview because if you haven't done the research, 
you, you may not have the precise information to ask a tough question, but he had a way of figuring out how to get into somebody often without asking a question. Did he have a belief that everyone has an interesting story to tell? I, I think he knew he could find the spark, that spark. And again, in Pumpernick's, they didn't have to go for an hour. You know, if he's on for the, with the waiter, it might be three minutes. You know, waiter had to go out and <laughs> deliver food. Uh, but he'd walk over to somebody else. So it wasn't until Bobby Darren started to come in and you got Bobby Darren, well, you know, we'll, we'll go for an hour. Uh, and that began to attract like Lenny Bruce, Don Rickles, everybody wanted to come. And so it was conversational and, and fun and everybody wanted to just drop in. And it was his secret sauce. That's great. So that, so after that, that was his inspiration to, to keep doing that stuff. Cause sometimes, sometimes it gets a little awkward if he has like a famous person on that everyone knows about and Larry just might not know what movies they were in or what TV show they're on. And those are the things that are kind of aired, like those, those sort of bloopers. That, that's right. But, but I guess most of the time it's really interesting to hear how he brings out the story. Like I, I remember there's one point where he had, I think it was Seinfeld and, and Seinfeld was like, are you really asking me this? Do you realize I had a TV show? Right. Yeah, he, he basically asked a question that intimated that Seinfeld got canceled. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a vague question and Seinfeld just jumped on it. Like, But that's Seinfeld style too. He likes to, um, he likes to challenge the interviewer. He, I see him do that many times. And it just gave him a, like a perfect opportunity to just say, like, do you understand like, the viewership that that show had, the right. situation we were in? And though that blooper can really give a, a bad impression of all the good things that sure. came out of the style. There's another story that comes out in the podcast about his interview with Frank Sinatra that will point out how he actually asked questions, deep questions, without asking the question. I mean, this guy was a genius and a master, and I watched him night after night at CNN ask questions without even saying a word, just, he could do it with a glance. He could stop somebody from talking without saying a word. Somebody start rambling, he'd give a quick look at his watch and the person knew, uh-oh. <laughs> so that was a technique. He, and if you asked him, Larry, how do you get some, to, how do you stop somebody who's rambling? He never codified it into an online course that said, this is what to do. But when he was, he was like a jazz musician. When he was in the moment, he would just do these things. And that's where getting a chance to watch him night after night after night, you say, oh, 
That's how he does it. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable. And it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, Trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So again, like, how did you end up having two, three infinite breakfasts with him every day? Like, how did you get into his, so deep into his inner circle, He's you're sitting next to him on his shows? So what happened was, I did this What I've Learned interview with him when he got to a place where he's one of the most famous people on the planet. Uh, this is right around maybe the year 2000 or so. It was a great interview, uh, really memorable. And uh, that story of Lady Forley and the horse, that's what appeared in the Esquire What I've Learned column. And it wasn't, in, in my view, like I just sent, it was usually when I would send my stories in, they were, so crafted. It, it, it's like the way Hitchcock makes movies where Hitchcock didn't want the editor messing with his movie. So he would only shoot exactly what he wanted. And then basically the actors knew, like, you got to nail it this way so that when it went to the editor, they had no choice but mm. to adhere to Hitchcock's vision. And that's the way... I basically tried to handle the what I've learned columns where I would get all this information and I would assemble them uh, almost cinematically because you can really influence a story by putting one fact at the top and another in the middle 
and another at the bottom. You can make facts build so that when you get to the end, you go, oh my God. And I wanted to be in control of that process. My God, I just compared myself to Alfred Hitchcock. I was <laughs> I was going to point that out. James, I was going to oh, no. point that out. Now you're getting decided, me in trouble, James. <laughs> I decided not to do it, but I know people are going to think that, so I'm glad you brought it up. But I was going to say immediately, but but you caught it as well. Um, My apologies okay. to everyone. My apologies. <laughs> but I, d- I just wanted to get across the point that usually I would send these stories in like so close to the actual content that could appear in the magazine that there was not that much to edit. Or if the, the material was so good and I knew I could get a, I, I'd want to see it all. It was just unfortunate we didn't have enough space. I would, I would point out possibilities. But when it came this time, there was so much great content that I just sent like almost everything that appeared in the interview, all the wisdom. Right, let, let the editor figure that, it out. It's too I, much. I, I, yeah, it, it was, it doesn't matter what you do with it. It cannot go wrong. I don't care yeah. how you play this. And for whatever reason, the, the story about the horse race stuck out to the editor and it filled up the, it's a great story. the bulk of that page. It wasn't even my favorite. Like I, I have like... Three other favorite stories, four other stories, five other stories on top of that. But my, my point here is that I send it in and I see in the magazine what they loved and I realize, oh man, I just got all this material. It, it's it really is a shame that I didn't ha- I couldn't fill up the magazine with this. Well, that was back in 2000. Uh, time passes and uh, Larry keeps growing. I started to go from magazine writer to book writer. I was writing books in other people's words and started to specialize in it. And in 2008, I'm talking to my literary agent I didn't even realize at the time, but my literary agent was Larry's literary agent. Who's your agent? It's a guy named David Villiano. And so what happens is Villiano says to me, oh, you know what? It looks like I'm going to be doing a book with Larry King. And I said, Larry King? I said, I'll write you the proposal tomorrow. I like, I got everything. You just send it in. By the way, important lesson here. Don't wait for opportunity. Don't wait for someone to call you out of the blue. And I'm saying this to myself and the listeners, but I'm noticing, but this, this technique has worked for me and I'm, I'm noticing now it just worked for you. You can't, no one's going to call Cal Fussman out of the blue and say, I want you to write Barack Obama's autobiography. <laughs> you have to pursue things. You have to write the proposal for free to get the job, particularly in such a highly competitive area. We all love the highly competitive areas. That's why we all love them. And, uh, or that's why they're so highly competitive. So you, you took, you saw an opening, but you have to, you have to go for the opening. You can't just wait for people to bless you with, with their magic. When I heard that, and I'm so glad you asked me that question because I can almost visualize the moment. 
You know, it was my Lady Forley. <laughs> you know, I'm seeing those horse. Yeah, and it's your miracle. I, that horse is going to win. And I know, like, not, it's not even about the work, James. I know this is going to be a great book. I got all the stories. And he had written books before. Uh, I had read some of them. And got to be honest, uh, at times they would, were not assembled very well. Uh, was he the writer? Uh, he had ghostwriters. Uh, but he had, he had never done like a soup to nuts autobiography. He would do books, uh, some about communication, really good book. Uh, if anyone wants to look for it, it's like how to communicate with anybody anytime. Uh, he did a book uh, about New York, growing up in New York. He did like books that focused on themes in his CNN show, could be about religion, God, spirit, could be about love stories. Uh, he, he was doing books all the time. Uh, but I realized, wow, this is a f format. This is an avenue that I can go down to reach a platform to assemble everything into a chronological journey that shows how he became who he became and where it all ended up. And so Villiano says, well, let me, let me call him, see what he has to say. And he remembered me. And he said, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, why don't you set up a lunch with Cal? Next time I'm in New York, I'll meet him over at the Regency and let's move it forward. So I go meet him at the Regency and he's all in, very gracious, and, sa and we say, okay, God, I'm, I'm telling the story now, realizing how much he changed my life. Because I'm living in North Carolina at the time. I had moved down to raise my kids near their grandparents, my mom and dad. And I thought, okay, how about we do this, Larry? I'll come out over the summer to LA. I'll get a place for the summer and my kids and my wife can go out. It'll be a nice vacation for them. And we can do all of the research and get all the content for the book. And then in September, I'll go back home to North Carolina and I'll write the book. And if I need any help at that point, we can always talk by phone. He says, great. So I go out and my wife and my kids are, hey, you know what? They were in the same place where I met you in Santa Monica. Oh yeah. You remember the hotel yeah, yeah. on the water next to Casa Del Mar? Yeah, yeah. I um gosh, it's 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 a, a well-known hotel in Santa Monica, but now I forget the name, but yes. And so they're happily camped out by the sea, and I'm going to breakfast at Nate and Al's deli where he sits down with his friends every morning and becoming one of the crowd. Uh, there was just one problem. The contract for the book had not been sent. And Larry said, look, uh, I would prefer that we started on the actual interviewing once all the T's are crossed, the, crossed, the I's are dotted, and 
our names are on the contract. Is that okay? I said, sure. So I kept just going to breakfast with him. Uh, at times he would invite me to dinner. He would invite me to the CNN show. But we didn't really start to move on the book. And now, like, we're through with May. We're through with June. Where's the contract? Oh, you know how these contracts go. Yeah, it, it takes a long time. I, I have no idea why. It's All we needed was like a single piece of paper. But it didn't come until like the end of August. And so now I still, I don't have the first word of this book. Uh, but what I do have is the start of a friendship because now I'm at the breakfast table every day. One of his best friends, Sid Young, was uh, like his protector. And if Sid Young liked you, you were in. If he didn't like you, you're going to have problems. And Sid and I immediately became close. I mean, all these guys were of my father's generation. They grew up not far from where my father grew up in Brooklyn. They like they were could be father figures to me. And so it was really seamless. I, I was, if my dad had lived where they lived, you know, these guys would have been uncles to me. And by the end of the summer, I'm thinking, all right, now what am I going to do? Because I got to somehow get this interviewing done, but it, it's going to be hard to do it if I go back to North Carolina with my family. And that's when I said to my wife, you know, I, I think I'm just going to take an apartment here and I'll spend a couple of months and then I'll come in on weekends and, and and so she's thinking wait a second you're gonna just spend all your time with a guy who's been married seven or eight times <laughs> and i'm gonna be on the other side of the country while you're being influenced by this guy no problem cow you know what that didn't she met him she liked him uh, my kids uh, my youngest daughter uh, bridget would come to breakfast with me every Saturday. And so it started to become like a family. And Larry brought his two youngest kids to breakfast on weekends. They got to know each other. They were shooting spitballs across the table. I mean, you know, my daughter was like six years old at the time. That's what we're talking about there. We're talking about immediately stepping into a very familial place, a familiar and familial place. And September rolls around and my wife does say, and my kids say, you know, we want to live by the beach. <laughs> we don't want to live without dad. We want to be here too. If you're going to stay, we want to stay. And so I said, okay, uh, We'll, we'll all, we'll all move here. And we, we got a place in Santa Monica and I would drive to breakfast every morning and, the, and then the research picked up heavily. And so I was with him almost all the time. Uh, there was a deadline on the book. It became my life. 
either I was doing Esquire interviews or doing this book. And I think it must have been in about, the book was done in like six months, which it was kind of sad because if I had had like a year and a half to really do the book and talk with everybody, it it might have been a different book. Uh, But I was able to get out the accumulation of his career and all the stories were seamlessly woven in. And you did Larry like the book? Larry loved the book. All his friends loved the book. All the people who people would read this book in a night or two days because it moved so fast. It was literally like sitting down at breakfast with Larry, listening to tell it him tell his stories and his encounters. It's in his words. That's what I do. I'm just shaping his words so that you felt you were at the breakfast table with us. And a lot of laughter, uh, but also the difficult moments. And then my family was living in L.A. And I, I'm telling you, it's, it's almost hard to imagine. <laughs> it's, this is also 2008. I'm talking September. You know what happened then, September, October. The whole Great Recession comes into being. And I can't even, like, get a grip on it because I'm so locked in on just getting this book done. It had gotten a nice advance. It's probably good for you. Like, uh, you were kind of detached from, it was really a horror story. Uh, Yeah, well, that horror story would later revisit me because now I got houses on two coasts. And basically all work dries up. Uh, But every setback is a step forward. And what happened is uh, the success of the first book uh, got a second book. And we did a second book. And that book actually came out still in the Great Recession, and it was right. I I remember uh, Borders Books closing right at the time where the second book came out, and we were going to Borders Books to to look, see where they positioned it or whatever, and it was just closed, and you just knew, uh uh-oh, there's gonna be some problems here. Uh, The first book, he went on the air and actually held it up, talked about it, And so it got a great reception. And I I started to feel at that time that, oh, like you start to feel the the magazine world starting to shrivel up. Uh, Now it's got to be in a real difficult place because COVID was like a brutal left hook to to magazines. but back then, you, in the Great Recession, you could start to see the magazine stands go out of business. Yeah. And no, like even, I mean, a lot of magazines, you, you suddenly would notice thinner and thinner magazines because fewer ads. That, that's right. So, like the What I've Learned column that I did for Esquire, I used to do one like every month. Uh, occasionally, someone else would do one, but basically, uh, it was my what 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 I actually did. It was it was kind of a smart move. 
uh, because in the Great Recession, uh, all the budgets started getting slashed. And I was talking to the editor of Esquire, and he was telling me, look, there's going to have to be cuts made. And, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll like give up a chunk of my salary to just do these What I've Learned interviews. I'm not going to write anything else. Uh, like every month, you'll get a What I've Learned interview with an icon. And then in January, uh, I the whole issue was these What I've Learned interviews that I would do. And so I sacrificed a chunk of my salary there. I was working for ESPN magazine. And right before this, they had the same jitters in their stomach. And I talked to the editor and the editor said, you know, like, we may have to let some people go. And I said, you know what? Take my salary. I'm going to be fine. Like, give the money to somebody who's up and coming and needs it. And of, of course, thinking, uh, don't, whatever, whatever's coming, I'll, I'll be able to surf the wave. And then <laughs> the next thing you know, it's like, you know, little Cal out there with a surfboard and a tsunami, the Great Recession coming at him. And, but I was next to Larry. I, I was next to Larry King and every setback is a step forward. And I'm listening to him. Uh, he celebrates his 25th anniversary on CNN. And shortly thereafter, uh, he leaves CNN uh, to start his own internet interview show. Uh, Carlos Slim, the Mexican multi-billionaire, got behind him. Did, did Larry want to do that? Or was he asked to retire? Or It was a time of change. And I think what was happening is cable news ratings were starting to go down. Uh, was, the internet was coming in and picking up a lot of the ears and eyes of people. And they were, they were moving from television to the internet. And so CNN was basically looking at this, perhaps with a vision for the future. I think they made a terrible mistake uh, and they chose- Was Larry disappointed at all? I mean, I know my, my guess is he wasn't because of what you have said, but was he surprised or disappointed? It, it was hard for him uh, to leave mm -hmm. that show. Uh, you spend 25 years doing it night after night after night. You work with the same people. Uh, you have your routines develop. Uh, and he was a very routine-driven person. I mean, if breakfast was at 8.30, he was there at 8.29. Again, he, his background was in the radio. You cannot show up five minutes late. So everything functioned according to time. He was a clockhead. But, but, but I will, I will say like, I, you know, with his internet show, I thought, okay, that's the end of Larry King. Like I remember when this, this happened, but, uh, he, he brought it to life. He, people tuned in to his internet show. And Oprah Winfrey told him, because remember she started to fan out on cable 
uh, you know, she was right. She left CBS and that, that's right. Went on her own way. She went on her own way, and all of a sudden, it was like, what channel's Oprah on? Like everybody knew where she was, but when she went about doing her own thing, all of a sudden, like, where's Oprah? And it became very easy. All you had to do was go to the internet and Google like Larry King internet show and it would come to you. And Oprah actually told him, I wish I had done what you did. Uh, unfortunately, it was the show was not managed well and it, it could have been a lot better, a lot bigger, and it could have been a game changer. Uh, but because it wasn't managed well, it just kind of stayed at its own level as time passed. Uh, in that time, I'm still having breakfast with Larry every day. And also, some of, the, of his friends who were 75 when I came to the table, like now they're hitting 80. And uh, Sid Young, who I mentioned, who I became very close with, he actually had a stroke at the table. At, the, at table. the table, like half of his face froze and he didn't realize it. He was communicating as if he was fine, but it was only coming out of one side of his mouth. And I'm saying, Sid, like, I, I got to take you to the doctor. And Sid's like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> like, I'm just going to go home and get some sleep. And I said, Sid, you're not driving home. And he's like screaming at me through half of his face. And finally, I, I got his keys and I drove him over to the doctor and they said, like, oh, it's such a good thing you got him here now. And he... Yeah, strokes are scary in that if you, you... This is the one time in your life you cannot be in denial. Like every second counts. Because blood is leaking into your brain and, and you know incapacitating your brain you could be in serious, painful trouble, like like being locked into your body and frozen and whatever. If you if you wait even a second too much. And I was so grateful that I got him to the doctor. He he lived a few years after that, but the the, the stroke set in motion a lot of complications, and sure. it left him at home. He couldn't come to the breakfast table. Others at the table started to pass away. And it's almost getting to a point where it's like me and Larry. Uh, and what I started to do, and this is why it's so hard for me to believe that I didn't invite you to the table, because I started to invite like all the cool people that I was meeting to come to breakfast. Honored to be included on that list, even though you, I wasn't you, at, at the breakfast. You were included. I guarantee you, I invited you many times. You probably did. I, you know, I, I, every time I was in LA, it was always there for a reason. And if I was doing something, I probably just didn't go. But I remember being jealous that, that Steve went and I didn't go. Well, uh, um, when you listen to the podcast, you'll have your seat at the table. Excellent. All right. Uh, and, let, let, let me ask you this. Like, did you, you were so close to him. You were, you were going to all these shows. You were sitting next to him and, and you were meeting all the guests. Did you ever ask anything of him? Like, Hey, Larry, 
I'd like to do a radio show. Can I, do you know a way I should start? Or did he ever offer like, why don't you fill my sho shoes on this radio show or TV show or whatever, or, or guest host for me or anything like that? It happened very slowly and unexpectedly. Uh, he was given a show on the radio. It was one minute, like Larry King dropping in. And he said, do you want to write the radio, the radio copy for that? And it, it could be about anything. It could be about <laughs> one week. And I, I, it, it comes to mind because after he passed, I was so glad this happened. Uh, my daughter... Bridget, same one who was coming to Larry's breakfast table every Saturday and Sunday. She was like a part of the group. Uh, she was in this choir, and the choir was singing Danny Boy. You know that song? Oh, Danny Boy. Yeah. yeah. The pipes, the pipes are calling. And so I said to her, after hearing the performance, like, Bridget, do you know, again, she's like nine years old, 10 years old, kid. Do you know what that song is about? She's so, yeah, it's about this Irish plumber. There's this big leak in town and the plumber has to go fix the leak. So he's got to leave the kid, Danny. And so the song is about the plumber going to fix the leak. And I tell everybody at the breakfast table, they're cracking up. And so we would do like a minute spot about that. It could just be That's anything great. I love that. that comes up and it makes you laugh. Good concept. And so we're doing this week after week and I'm handing him the copy and I'm noticing how he's not writing anything on it, but he's changing it as he's talking. As a writer, my sentences might have been like longer and somewhat detailed. But he was turning it into his That's voice. That's right, in front of my eyes. And so now I'm starting to see how it is when you talk on the radio. And then my copy started to be radio copy. Because we're doing this like week after week. And then he, after, after he left CNN, one of the things he always wanted to do was a comedy show. So he did a 90-minute show. It's like a Vegas-like show, something you'd see out at the Wynn, uh, where he would be on stage. It was a one-man show. And they would flash up photos, uh, and he'd tell his stories. And then at the end, there would be a Q&A. And he loved this. And this was, I think his dream was to do this on Broadway because he wanted to be a comic. You remember Jackie Mason had that show years yeah. ago. It was, a, it was a big hit. That's what he wanted to do. So I went around with him while he was doing this show. And I'm just watching, like, again and again and again. And it's almost like I'm breathing in this way of storytelling. And so what happens is I am inviting younger people, like young entrepreneurs over to the table 
to meet Larry. And one of them is a guy named Elliot Bisnow, who started a, an organization, a group called Summit. And the idea is this was going to be a place where entrepreneurs could come together, learn from each other, uh, hack success, or figure out how to be successful from each other. They ended up buying, Elliot and his partners, buying a mountain in Utah, in Eaton, Utah, and building a community for entrepreneurs so that groups could come in and learn from each other, and they would bring speakers in, and they also did cruises. Uh, every year, they'd cruise from Miami to the Bahamas. And so at the table, Elliot says to Larry, wow, like, could you come and speak uh, on our cruise? And of course, Larry always said yes. It was a big problem. I, I mean, he would say yes to people, and after breakfast, I'd have to pull him aside and say, look, I know he said yes, but it's, not, it's probably not going to happen because he's- That's a little like me, unfortunately. Yeah, and he would say yes to four bookings like in the single, in, on a single weekend night. And then like the day before, everybody would call up. And ultimately, he got a wonderful woman named Becky who was in charge of his schedule. But people would come up and ask him. He'd say yes, and it would never get to Becky. And then somebody would have to tell the people who thought they were on the schedule that Larry had another appointment. Oftentimes, it was Sid. Uh, I would do it. And... I knew when Elliot asked Larry, would you like to come speak on a cruise, that there was no way that Larry was going to speak on the cruise because Larry had a fear of water. He had nearly <laughs> drowned when he was a kid, and he wanted nothing to do with water. So I'm sitting there watching this saying, Elliot, like, it's, it's just not going to happen. Like, I know he said yes. And Elliot said, really? I said, I, I promise you it's not going to happen. And Elliot said, well, how, like, why don't you come and speak? So I said, sure. I, I had never spoken up until that point. And I went down to this cruise. I prepared for it. And in the preparation, like, I can feel that what I just saw on that 90-minute performance that Larry was given, his comedy tour, it was like coming out of me through my own stories. I mean, my stories were with Muhammad Ali or Mikhail Gorbachev or Robert De Niro. And it was Larry coming out because I'd never told the stories like that before. And I got up on stage on this cruise ship and it was an evening. And I thought like, this ship is set up. There are 4,000 entrepreneurs aboard. There are speakers all over the ship. You go see what you want. Hardly anybody knows about me at that point. Unless you read Esquire magazine, I was pretty well off the radar, and I never tried to promote myself. And so I'm thinking, ah, you know what? Like 17 people may show up to this. And then at the last minute, they moved me from one room to another, and I'm thinking, okay, like four people are going to show up. 
What I didn't understand is they had marketed this perfectly. Uh, and it was more like decoding the art of the interview with Donald Trump, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Robert De Niro. That was the title that everybody was seeing in the handbook for the event. And so I arrive, and there are people filling every seat. I thought there were going to be like a few people, and I actually had this idea that I'm going to get a few sommeliers to give wine out during my talk. So it would be kind of chummy. We'd all be drinking a glass of wine. And I arrive, every seat's packed. There are billionaires <laughs> sitting in the aisles, legs crossed, because they didn't arrive in time to get a seat. And everybody is packed to the back of the room. And I look up and I said, holy shit. I've never spoken before. I am like Larry on his first day on the air. Only everybody is going to be looking at me. <laughs> and I just remembered, you know, Larry telling that story. And it would, after he tells that story about nothing coming out, he always used to say, Whenever he told that story to people like Jackie Gleason or anyone, Arthur Godfrey, who had been on radio for years, they would say to him, you discovered the secret of success on your first day on the air. And that is, there is no secret. Just be yourself. So that's in my head. I got a glass of wine in my hand. They've run out of wine. People are like, where's my wine? And I just got up and I just started telling stories, just like Larry told stories for that hour and a half. And I went about an hour and 15 minutes. And when I'm done, is a standing ovation. That's and great. this monk in monk garb, there's a long line of people to see me. And the one guy who stood out was this monk shaved head and he's oh what's his name I, I think i know him i think i've seen him at conferences dandapani yeah yeah I know great him. guy great guy yeah yeah and he it comes to a place where i'm working down the line of shaking everyone's hands and dandapani says to me how long have you been speaking i said well this is my first day and he said what he said you got to be doing this for, I don't know what else you do, but this is what you should be doing for a living. And I said, really? He said, I go to conferences. I speak. I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. Any way I can help you, you let me know. I'll open doors. I'll introduce you to people. I am telling you, this is who you are and you've got to do it. And so at that moment, I became a speaker. And, That's and great. at that time, at that precisely that moment, uh, or it was getting to that point where the editor of Esquire, David Granger, who I'd worked with from the first day that he arrived, uh, he reached about 20 years. I was there for 20 years and he left Esquire at that point. And so I moved on as well, straight into speaking. And now I am working with my voice 
And Larry King is in the audience watching me. And he would, this tells you something. He was so proud because he would always come up and just like put his arm around me and said like, can you believe this guy? Like he came to the table, he barely said a word. Now look at him. And it, that's great. And it was very much a sort of father son like relationship that way. Under the rubric of every setback is a step forward. Okay. Let me ask you this. If you, you know, so sadly, January 23rd, day after my birthday, actually, January 23rd of this year, um, Larry King passed away from complications due to COVID. Uh, you know, as you mentioned to me in a, in an earlier conversation, um, it was, it, I, because, I guess because of the COVID aspect, he was by himself. He couldn't have family and, and friends with him. I'm sure that was very sad, but I'm sure he was probably knocked out and whatever. But, um, I mean, it's cliche to ask you, what was your first reaction when you heard about it? I'm sure you were sad. So I'm not going to ask that, but I want to ask you if you had, if, if, and this is, a, this is also kind of a cliche sort of question, but I feel so much emotion in your, in your story and in the times you spent with him and your descriptions of it. If you could tell, if Larry King could come back for 30 seconds, 30 to 60 seconds right now, and you could tell him one thing that you wish you had told him, what, what would it be? Well, I actually got to do that in real life because well, what happened is uh, his health started failing and it really started getting really difficult in April of 19. And I, there were just so many medical problems. I mean, we're, we're talking like lung cancer, leukemia. He went into the hospital, got sepsis twice, uh, problems with his bladder, prostate cancer, heart problem, heart failure. I mean, it, there were doctors who looked at his charts and told him, Larry, according to these charts, you should be dead. And I would go see him as much as I possibly could, because by this point, uh, I'm now out on the road as a speaker. Sure. And like, I'm in Germany, I'm in Singapore, and I can't come to breakfast every day. But I had recruited uh, a core of people so that when I wasn't there, there was that group for him to join every morning so he could follow that routine. But when he went into the hospital in April of 19, I, I could tell, I mean, there were times through the next year that I would go visit him and wonder, is this the last time I'm going to see him? Uh, and so I knew what he was up against, but he just kept coming back. And once on stage, I had asked him what he's most proud of. And he said, it was every time I went down, I got back up. Mm, I love that. And his son started to take care of him. His, uh, his son, Chance, who is about 20 years old, going to USC, 
and really started to be with him all the time and step up like at the hospital, slept with him at the hospital. And ultimately what happened when COVID hit is Larry's at home, I'm at home. Now I'm frightened. Like if I go over and visit, if I have COVID and I pass it on to him, I'll never be happy with myself again. And so we we talked on the phone. I went over there occasionally, kept at a distance. Sometimes we watched sporting events. But I really, I, I was forced to social distance. And I, at, once COVID hit, I, I really did not go anywhere. I, I, I just, for the first time in my life, I just said, you know, I can take no risks. If I get this disease, then, you know, I've, I've got, you know, my kids and my wife, they're depending on me. So I, I just stayed at home and tried to ride it out. And I noticed Larry's son, Chance, taking care of Larry. And now my dad is about to turn 90 and he's at home in North Carolina alone. And I'm, I'm watching Chance and I'm thinking, you know, I should be with my dad. Mm. And so in August, uh, and by that time, all three of my kids had sort of gone out into different areas. Uh, youngest was just going off to school at NYU. And I all, all the breakfasts were over because the breakfast places weren't open. There was no more breakfast. Uh, I would call Larry and I would get videos of Larry trying to walk out. He had a stroke and when he had the stroke, he lost the ability to walk and he really fought against it, fought against it, fought against it. And he, he actually, I, I have a video of him where he's on a walker and he's just kept at it till he could walk. Uh, but there would always be a fall. You know how it is. You get to be 86, 87. And I, like I knew what ultimately was going to happen. And I decided to make the decision to be with my dad in North Carolina. So my wife and I packed up. We moved across the country. And I... I talked with Larry. The conversations were short at that point. Obviously, he was in a lot of pain. And times there were times when I called and he didn't call back. I, and, and then two of his older children passed away within a month. And I, I thought, oh, man, this, this is just too much. I mean, one... Uh, I think Andy was in his 60s and Kaya maybe her late 50s. And so he's like watching a funeral on Zoom. Uh, it had to be so terrible. And I went to see him right before I drove across the country with my dog from 
California to North Carolina. And in answer to your question, I had that moment and we just looked at each other and we both said, I love you. And that was the last words we said each, to each other while we were eye to eye. And I could tell as time was passing that things were getting rougher and rougher. And we talked occasionally. But I think what happened is right after we said, I love you, in some way, when I walked out the door, I knew I would never see him again in the same room. And, and so this is a hard thing to say, but in a way, the, the dealing with the death, the grief started then. And when he ultimately died, uh, I had been grieving for seven months already. So I wasn't grabbed by the lapels as somebody I know who just lost their dad, who was in the picture of health, and then they went to the doctor, and all of a sudden they were dead. And like you get a phone call. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Zorba the Greek. Mm -mm. Uh, it, it's the star was a guy named Anthony Quinn, Academy Award winner. If you ever get a chance, it's a black and white film. I think sure. back in the fifties. black and white films. And it it may seem slow moving at times because it it was filmed at a slower time. But if you're watching it back in that day, it actually moved pretty quick. And Zorba is this life loving figure like dancing and doing all these crazy things, running around with women. And then a woman who he had had a relationship with dies. And as soon as she dies, he stops grieving. It's like while he's with her in the last moments, he's hugging her. He's throwing his passion, but the moment she dies, he walks out the door and it's like, that was yesterday, this is now. And he just starts going to a place where he can dance again. And I've always tried to treat death like Zorba the Greek, uh, rather than wallow in it, I, I try to anticipate it and grieve ahead of time so that my grief is just is getting to a point where I can handle it and start to walk away. And that's pretty much the way I felt when Larry passed, although I, he'd always say to me, make sure my obituary is a good one which is why I've been selling it so hard on this podcast for everyone to listen to because I did his obituary, only not in the printed word, but through a microphone 
just like he taught me. And I scripted it all out. That's great. And I wove in the stories that he told me that I taped. And I did it in a way to keep him alive so that anybody who listens to it will feel like you're at the breakfast table. Well, Cal, this has been an amazing journey with you because I didn't really know much about him, to be honest. And I'm so glad you've told these stories. I'm going to listen to Remembering the King on the Big Questions podcast. And uh, it's a really, really beautiful relationship you had with him. And I, I hope you start doing breakfast every day with a, a group of your friends and I will go to that table. Well, you know what, James? I, I've i been thinking about that. It's on my mind. And I think when all this COVID ends, it's something that I'm going to try to put into my life again. Because it's a beautiful thing to get up in the morning and have some of the people you see every day there. Uh, and other times there were people who showed up on Tuesdays and Thursdays, people showed up on Saturdays uh, that you were connected to. And then I was always bringing in new people so that it was really a lively place to be. And there were, in, in that case, there were people who were just in awe that they got to spend breakfast sure. with Larry and then afterwards, it, it it almost got to be like a thing because afterwards he posed for a picture. <laughs> I would I would like shoot the shot and text it or email to them. I have like more pictures of people like with Larry and Larry having their his hand around their shoulders in my cell phone than I do of Larry and me uh, because it it was so great for these people to have that memory of the experience. And I, I'm really grateful to you for allowing me to talk about it because it really, it makes me happy to celebrate his life. And I'll just leave you with that same sentence. Every setback, is a step forward. If you look at life that way, if you look, his life was a perfect example. Every time he got knocked down, he came back to a bigger place. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.